back to the Hunter's Quest podcast. This is your host, Hunter McWaters, and it's great to be with you guys as always, and I hope you guys are having a fantastic Easter. Uh, Hopefully where you are, you're enjoying some nice weather. I know a lot of the West is still kind of getting unburied from snow, but uh, hopefully you're enjoying some family time, and I do hope that you are getting a chance to reflect upon the true meaning for this season which is that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And today we commemorate that, his victory over death and the grave and the forces of evil that are very much real and very much still alive in our world today. And that's kind of something we're going to dive into on this podcast this week. I got a doozy of a podcast for you guys this week. So, um, you know, this one is definitely outside the box of the Hunter's Quest podcast. So I want to talk through and give you guys a little bit of context because, um, you know, I'm intentionally releasing this episode on Easter, the day where we commemorate commemorate Jesus's death and resurrection and ascension and victory over evil. Um, But today I am going to be diving into some, uh, I don't know, you might call them um, alternative Christian concepts or something. I'm not sure what the proper term is, but... Um, my guest is a guy named Timothy Alberino, who's written a book recently called Birthright. And um, I recently have been getting into this, uh, this space of kind of alternative ancient history um, and, you know, some of the crazy stuff that the Bible talks about that most of the Christian church just is unwilling or unable to accept or to talk about. Um, and a lot of that starts way back in Genesis chapter 6. Um, where we are given this brief account of this group called the Watchers coming down on Mount Hermon and mixing and intermingling and breeding with humans and creating a race of giants called the Nephilim, um, which ultimately led to God destroying the entire world. And, you know, this is in the Bible. It's in Genesis 6, and I feel like probably I've already lost most of you out there, even if you are Christians and been studying the Bible your whole life, because, again, it's just something that's not talked about. Um, but there's a lot of things in our world, in our society, um, that are intentionally, I believe, hidden uh, from our sight, um, whether that be intentionally by you know evil or, uh, you know, the mainstream media. Um, but anyway, it's kind of a crazy wormhole, and I wanted to talk to you guys about it this week because I feel like it's an interesting subject that's important that needs to have some light shed on it. It has uh, real repercussions in our world today, um, and it's just fascinating. Um, You know, I'm fully aware that this is not the podcast for everyone, Um, and I'm also fully aware that I might lose some of you guys out there doing this, but um, I do think it's important to talk about, and I think it's our job as Christians and people who seek the truth to use whatever platform we may have to shed light on the darkness and try to push back the darkness, and, you know, this podcast, it might seem a little all over the place, it might seem a little wild. It's definitely outside of the box, and I don't think we really talk about hunting at all. Um, but it's very interesting uh, to me, and you know, it's a very big topic. It's something you can't really get your head and your 
hands around in one podcast, to be honest. Um, so I jump into stuff with my guest, but the idea of this podcast was just to kind of get you questioning, um, because there's a lot of things that we're taught in our history classes and our science classes, even in our Sunday school classes that, uh, are misinformation, are downright wrong, um, are part of a, you know, secret hidden agenda. Um, I basically don't believe anything I hear from science or mainstream media anymore or doctors, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I, you know, it's a broad stroke and obviously there's, there's good folks in all those fields. So, um, but, um, there's just a lot of crazy stuff happening. It seems to be accelerating, you know, as of late in the last few years. So again, you know, I probably already lost a bunch of you. This episode will surely lose a few of you. Um, if you're not into this kind of thing, if you just want to hear a podcast about hunting, this is probably not the episode for you. You might want to go back and find a different one or, uh, or just skip this week, to be honest, because it gets a little heavy, it gets a little theological, and uh, it might blow your mind a little bit. But I wanted to give you guys just kind of a entree or a, um, a start into this world, because like I said, you really can't grasp all these concepts and everything we're talking about fully just in one conversation. So I encourage you that if you are interested in this stuff, if you do think it's something you want to hear more about, you know, check out uh, Tim Alberino's book, Birthright. Um, and also, there's a really good podcast that I've been listening to lately that deals with a lot of these topics called Blurry Creatures. Um, and uh, it might sound weird, but they it's these two guys, they're Christian guys, they filter everything through a biblical context, but they talk about um, cryptid creatures and Bigfoot and alternate dimensions and ancient giants and even Atlantis and um, the megaliths that uh, we still have um, in our world today that many believe are evidence of some of these things. So again, I know this is kind of wild, kind of out of the box. Uh, you know, feel free to skip this one if it's not for you. Um, but again, I just felt it was important to have this conversation um, and to maybe open a few eyes out there listening. Um, and, uh, let me know what you guys think. And if you're interested, check out Timothy's book. Um, you know, go back and look for yourself in Genesis six, all throughout Genesis, Exodus, even the numbers. Um, there's many frequent mentions of giants and how the Israelites had to, um, had to fight and kill and destroy these races of giants, um, including Goliath including um, uh, Og of Bashan. There's many references to the Anak and the Nephilim. And uh, anyway, I'll just uh, leave it there. And uh, if this has piqued your interest, I hope you enjoy this one. It could be a wild ride. If not, you know, like I said, this might not be the one for you. But in any event, happy Easter. Um, I hope you guys are enjoying your time, enjoying spring. I do want to give shout outs to a few guys who left me reviews on Apple Podcasts. And uh, so SB at Oregon Hunts, H Dow, and Joe22657. Thank you guys for the five star reviews and ratings. And uh, if you hit me up on Instagram, send me a message. I'll get some swag in the mail to you. Um, so, anyway, guys, that's pretty much what I got for this week. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I hope it enlightens you and uh, maybe encourages you to dig deeper into some of these subjects that uh, 
most of us have not really dug into much to this point, but I think are important. So um, hang on and enjoy the ride. That's all I can say. All right, guys, we'll see you on the next one. All right, guys, welcome to the Hunter's Quest podcast. It's good to be with you guys. Um, today, I'm with my guest. Uh, you may not have heard of, but you're probably going to want to look more into after today's conversation. I'm here with uh, Tim or Timothy Alberino. Which do you prefer, Tim or Timothy? Either one. Okay. Um, well, I'm here with Tim Alberino, and you are in Montana, correct? I'm in Bozeman, Montana. Nice. So we were just talking a little bit off air. Um, you know, this episode is probably going to be a little bit outside the box of what we kind of normally talk about here. Uh, this is, you know, in some ways a faith-based, um, spirituality-based podcast. But today we're kind of going to go into some different realms maybe that a lot of people even in the church have never really delved into. But um, first I'd love to just kind of give some context, you know, to folks like just you know, who you are, what you're all about, maybe just, you know, we don't have to go super deep into it, but kind of your personal and professional background just to give folks a little context on, on who you are. Okay. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, thanks for coming, man. I am a writer, researcher, explorer. I've been involved in filmmakers. Well, I've been involved in researching, you might call them, fringe topics for a decade, over a decade. Um, and I, I lived in Peru for a long time. I lived for 10 years in Peru. I dropped out of high school when I was 18. I moved to the Amazon jungle. And uh, so I have a background in, I guess you would say, exploration, adventure. And uh, I... I'm an avid researcher, so I've written a book called Birthright. I've made, pretty soon it's going to be six films by May. And uh, I spent a lot of time talking <laughs> about weird stuff, especially as it pertains, especially as these topics pertain to the biblical narrative. Yeah. Yeah, and um, you know, that's one of the things that, I love about listening to your stuff and your work is that, um, well, first of all, I mean, you know, these topics that are fringe topics, you know, quote unquote, in the last couple of years have really kind of moved out of the fringe. And it's like, even, even all the stuff with the revelations from the mainstream media and, you know, all these stuff that people like, like me and presumably yourself are being called conspiracy theorists during the pandemic is all coming out as, as truth. So it's kind of, uh, these fringe topics have kind of moved a little bit, um, out of the fringe, I feel like, but, um, you know, you said, you said you lived in Peru and your dad was, um, a pastor, correct? Uh, my father was a pastor. That's correct. All my life. And unfortunately he passed away in 2020, but he, oh, sorry I grew up, that. so I grew up in a church environment, which I had very good parents. Uh, and it was a very healthy environment to grow up in. I had a great childhood, so it was a very advantageous start to life for me. 
And then what drew you to the Amazon? Or how'd you end up there? As I always say, when people ask me this question, that is a, that is a loaded question for me. It's, <laughs> it takes a very long time to answer that. Um, but let's just say that I was disenchanted with suburbia America with, um, with sort of the typical fare uh, in, of, of, churchianity uh i was a young man who was driven by like a very very potent sense of adventure and a desire to know god in a very intimate way mm. and so those two things sort of converged and um it's a very long story but i i had the opportunity to go to peru for a month with this gentleman named alfonso Felix, who was a Mexican guy, who was a missionary in Peru, Mexican guy, but missionary in Peru. And uh, and we went to a city in the Amazon Basin, Amazon Basin called Terrapoto. And I spent a month with him in Terrapoto, and it it's it was an enlightening experience. And I realized that there was a whole lot of there was a op, there was an opportunity to to experience a completely different way of life than i had been accustomed to and that mm -hmm. was extremely appealing to me so again very long story short the following year i dropped out of high school and and moved 400 dollars in my pocket moved to the amazon basin in terrapoto peru and uh, began a a quest um, of sorts with the desire to to encounter God and and to broaden my horizon, so to speak, in terms of this new cultural experience in Peru, which I took very well to. By the way, I learned Spanish in six months, and wow. and I adapted very well to that culture. I like the 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 freedom i liked the the discomfort of living in a third world country i liked i i took very well to it i like the 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 culture that was i'm trying i'm reaching for words here okay. um that was much wilder uninhibited in in the sense that you know, here in the United States, everything is so prim and perfect and mm. comfortable and and the way that we the way we do everything here in the United States, even getting in your car and driving to the grocery store over there, it was you hop on your motorcycle and you go to the open market. Yeah. And so it's it was just sort of a wild and free experience that I I I was was very much drawn to. Kind of more how humans were designed to live than how we actually live now here. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, um, one of the first things I did when I moved to Peru officially when I was 19, I went there when I was 18, then I moved back when I was 19 shortly after the first trip, was that I, I, I purchased some exotic animals in the market. You could do that at the time. <laughs> You'd go to the market, the open market in Terrapoto during 
in those years, you can't do it anymore. But if you went to the open market, say, 20 years ago, or 22 years ago, you would find all kinds of exotic animals. I almost bought a condor one time. I almost <laughs> bought a, I almost bought a jaguar. Um, in all, and then you realize what kinds. you have to do to keep it fed. <laughs> yeah, then I realized what am I going to do once it a condor? It's what am I going to do when it starts to want to fly? Yeah. And a jaguar, what am I going to do when it's too big to to handle? Or what happens if it attacks my neighbor? So that was that would have been a really dumb idea. Yeah. So I, I bought some monkeys instead, spider monkey and uh, some other kinds of monkeys, and and those were my my pets, my companions. I lived on the outskirts of town, and and lived by myself with these monkeys and and it was i always refer to those as the formative years of my life <laughs> and uh, it was That's quite awesome. the experience yeah man dude you would you would really like backcountry hunting just listen to you talk you should you're right in the heart of it too man you should let me take you on a hunt sometime um let's do it like i'm going bear hunting I, here shortly this oh spring, you are so. okay you're going spring bear hunting yeah i went uh Went hunting with a buddy of mine a couple uh, couple of years ago, and and this year he's he's really wants to to take me black bear hunting. So yeah, I'm probably going to go and do that. Yeah, you should, man. I'll be heading out uh, <clears throat> near there. I'll be in a different. I'll be in Idaho, but um, last year we went right through like Missoula. That area has a great bear hunting. You gonna be uh, black bear hunting this mm -hmm. spring over in this area? Oh yeah, wouldn't miss it. Well, you should um, swing through Bozeman. Let's go shoot some black bear. Yeah, man. Um, I I know quite a few folks in Bozeman, so if I do come through, I'd love to look you up and buy you a cup of coffee or something. Yeah, this is a great area for black bear hunting. It is. It is. It's it's a great area for hunting in general. I mean, we're yeah. only ninety minutes from Yellowstone. Not that you can shoot animals in Yellowstone, <laughs> but but there's right a next profusion of wildlife here. Yeah. So, um, have you done like backcountry style hunting where you like go in for multiple days and that kind of stuff? No. Yet? hiking but not hunting no i've okay. i've done that kind of hunting in peru i mean it was just a lifestyle yeah. i lived with hunters and lumberjacks in the amazon um but you know never never have gone back country hunt hunting in in montana but like you said this is basically ground zero for that sort of thing yeah. in the united states outside of alaska within the lower 48 yep yeah, Lord willing, I will have an elk tag in your state this year, and if that happens, maybe I'll have to drag you out there and well, have you help me shoot it. I know it's difficult for you guys out of state to get elk tags. I can get one for $15. I know. That's what I'm saying. Let's go. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. All my friends, they bag elks. Every every year, they bag elks, Yeah, and, uh, and they give me the meat. Nice. And they, you know, they get elk, and they get um, antelope. Yep. Sometimes, you know, there's a raffle for moose and yep. bighorn sheep. And I don't know if there's a raffle for the cats for the for the mountain lions. Those but, tags are a little easier to get, but uh Yeah, there's a lot of mount there's the mountain lion population is very healthy around here. Oh yeah. As as is the black bear population, as is the elk population mm -hmm. and the antelope, but the moose you gotta get a raffle for. You, got, you yep. have to uh, you have to, to win, draw the win tag. a raffle. You have to get, you have to draw a tag from a raffle. So, oh, trust um, me, I've been putting in for that for years. Yeah, I've got friends <laughs> that uh, finally got their bighorn sheep tags and nice. And uh, 
that takes about like thirty. A fun hunt. Big bighorn sheep seems like a really fun hunt. To yeah, me. that takes about twenty or thirty years to draw, like approximately. Yeah, that's <laughs> which is right. crazy. Yeah. But elk, but, um, everybody and their brother can grab an elk tag in Montana, fifteen dollars. Okay, I did my first hunt in Montana this year um, for deer. Shot a nice one. Um, but, uh, anyway, that's a story for another day, but well, yeah, you man. get the elk tag and the deer tag and you get, you know, and so while you're out there, you, you, you're there in the same environments basically. So you can shoot an elk or a deer or both yeah. on the same hunt, which is really cool. Uh, yeah, for sure. We saw a lot of elk, but we, we only had the deer tag, but it was negative 23. Also the first night we slept out there in a tent, which was, and that fun. is the main reason why I haven't really got into hunting yet. <laughs> I don't, you know, spring hunting is more appealing to yeah. me, but in the fall it can get bitterly cold and uh, i don't oh, yeah. care what i'm shooting at if i'm cold i'm not having fun yeah going from the amazonian climate to uh montana is a bit of a shocker yeah it's uh it's frigid up here in the winter yeah oh man um so when you were in peru i know peru is known for a lot of megaliths and stuff like that um which are, if people don't know that phrase, is basically, and forgive me if I'm like butchering this, but it's basically just giant ancient buildings of which we cannot explain the origin because, like, for example, the pyramids in Egypt. Like, basically, our own modern technology today, we can't figure out how to make those, and but they're there. Yeah, in some cases, um, megalithic constructions employ what is called cyclopean architecture, cyclopean masonry. And cyclopean architecture is composed of large stones that are fitted together without the use of any kind of binding material, such as a mortar. Mm. And this is exceedingly difficult to do because you have to fit these stones so tightly together and so precisely, otherwise they'll come apart. But in reality, these walls and edifices, edifices are constructed in such a way that they are resistant to earthquakes. They're anti-seismic. Hmm. And uh, the anti-seismic properties of some of the megalithic constructions around the world uh, represent an advanced form of masonry that, that we cannot duplicate today. We still don't have the knowledge to build a wall, for example, like the walls of Sacsayhuaman in Cusco, Peru. Those walls represent a technological advancement in terms of the way they're constructed, the cyclopean architecture that they employ. We simply cannot build to that level. We can build tall skyscrapers with cement, right? Uh, which is which is advanced architecture, certainly, but but we cannot build to the same level as some of the ancients, as some of these ancient sites using the materials that they used right yeah i saw like i think it was on your story a while back it was like a a reel a video or something of like a giant like front end loader trying to like move one block the size of the blocks used in the pyramids uh and like it couldn't even move one block and i think it flipped uh, you could... over the side of the hill that's the one i think you're <laughs> yeah. referring to yeah and um there's something about like it, you have to place one of those like every what is it, like every six minutes for 20 years or something to like yeah, build the as it pertains to the the Great Pyramid, yeah. So the pyramid was the pyramid of, at at on the Giza Plateau. The pyramids on the Giza Plateau 
are constructed of rectangular blocks or square blocks. And, uh, and what's amazing there is just the sheer manpower it would have taken to lay all, to cut and lay all of those blocks, um, consecutively. Uh, whereas like in Sacsayhuaman, you have what's even more difficult is you have polygonal blocks. So you, so mm. they're, they're quarrying these, this stone, limestone, andesite, in some cases, granite in some cases, and then they're transporting these massive stones that weigh up to three, 400 tons, some of them, across pretty rugged terrain. Uh, 10, uh, some 20 miles away is the quarry from the walls of Sacsayhuaman, for example. And they, they, so they have to cut the stone, extract it from the quarry. Then they have to transport it over rugged terrain. And then they have to shape it on site and fit it so precisely that you can't fit the blade of a butter knife between the joints. Jeez, yeah. And uh, if we were to do that today, we would have to use some kind of laser technology to do that. So basically we would, we would use precision uh, laser technology to, to cut out these shapes so that they fit together. But obviously they didn't have laser technology. Um, I think they might've had something similar actually, but, but, but they, today we would, if we didn't use laser technology, the, another technique we would have to do is, is continually lift the stones and, and keep, refining them to get them to fit so precisely you know sticking them put slotting them back in place lifting them up uh sanding them down some more putting them yeah. back i mean and that's just inconceivable when you're dealing with 300 ton blocks you're not lifting and putting back down and lifting and putting back down so obviously they were using uh they were and i think that these were prehistoric people by the way they were using a technique that has been lost to time now there is a recent investigations and experiments have confirmed that the ancients might have employed a parabolic lens to direct the rays of the sun into what is essentially a laser what is it what is a a sun beam a, and a and a very very powerful hmm. beam of sunlight that is capable of melting anything on planet earth. Like it's, it will melt through anything wow. and uh, it can be, fo you can focus sunlight through a parabolic lens or a series of parabolic lenses and you can use it like a laser to cut through stone mm -hmm. and, or even melt stone. So one thing that's very interesting to me about the megaliths in Peru, when you, take a close look at the stones and the way that they're fitted together, what you're going to find, and you can, you can clearly see this because in some places the stones are removed. So you have a large, you have a large stone that's exposed in a wall where the stone above it is, is no longer there. And so you can see how the stone that was once above it was, was fitted to the one below, how it mm -hmm. was resting on that stone and something that almost nobody ever points out is that if you run your finger along the edge of the stone on the bottom that the that the upper stone was where it was sitting you'll notice there's a ledge and the ledge is beveled so there's a beveled ledge it's not a straight flat surface it's beveled mm -hmm. on the end 
So it, it was almost like the stones were squished together <laughs> or that there was a mechanism that that there was a source of heat like a like a laser like or like a the focused rays of the sun of sunlight that melted the edge so so that the outer edge of the stone was a little bit soft because it mm. had been melted when the stones were put together and so you would have this beveled edge now you would also have this if you employed a polymer a a and a concrete if you if you employed some form of ancient cement and the cement wasn't in, and it wasn't in, it wasn't hardened so a geopolymer is basically molded and it wouldn't be entirely hard yet it would have to set and so if right. you were if you were creating these blocks out of a geopolymer and stacking them on top of one another then you would expect to find some squishing some settling some pillowing and some and you would expect to find these beveled edges so yeah. there's any number of explanations um possibilities right. i don't subscribe <laughs> to anyone particularly i think perhaps even all of these things were employed but yeah um there is a legend in peru and uh this goes back this is a this is a pre-columbian legend in peru that the inca were using some form of a chemical compound to soften the outer edges of the stone or the surfaces of the stone hmm. soften them enough to be able to shape them uh, much easier than if they didn't weren't using this chemical substance and and there is some indication that this might be true because there there are parrots i don't i don't know if they're macaws i can't remember if they're macaws but they're they're a species of parrot in the amazon that you, that and you can see this you can pull it up on youtube and see it watch videos of these parrots who fly down into the jungle and they grab a certain kind of plant and then they fly up to a rock face and they and they peck with this plant in their beak, they peck at the at the rock face, and and af after doing this for a long period of time and re re repeatedly over a period of time, they're able to create holes in the rock. Hmm. Um, and uh, some and kind of they, acidic plant or something. It's it's some sort of a it, there's some sort of a chemical reaction with interesting the chemicals in this plant and and the this the the rock this this particular stone and it's really fascinating like i said i think there's lots of videos of this online and i don't remember if they're macaws or what kind of parrots they are they're definitely parrots and they're definitely in the amazon and so there's some speculation and again i think there's 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 some credence to this legend that the inca had some way of softening the stone hmm. And so whether they were melting it using parabolic lenses and cutting the stone with focused with focused sunlight, which, as I said, essentially focuses the sunlight into a laser, whether they were softening the stone with a chemical agent uh, that we've since lost the, the knowledge of, or whether they were using a geopolymer or a combination of all of these things, um, what they were doing was remarkable yeah. and how they were doing it has obviously been lost to time. The knowledge of how they were building these megaliths and there are, let's return to this specific example of Saksai Waman, which is one of the most impressive megalithic walls on earth. Um, Saksai Waman 
is attributed to the Inca. It's viewed as an as a as a fortress of the Inca. But and this is of course the conventional archaeological view. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a friend named Anselm P. Rambla who's an explorer and he's done some archaeological work at the walls of Sacsayhuaman. He actually got a permit to dig. And uh, he did some excavations and he dug down into some of the lower levels of Sacsayhuaman where there were still stone blocks in the subterranean levels. And he found artifacts belonging to pre-Incan, to pre-Incan cultures, hmm. uh, which, which is a clear indication that the Inca did not build those walls. Rather, they discovered them. They found right. them and they repurposed them. And there's no reason to believe that these pre-Inca civilizations built them either because the Inca were more advanced technologically and society and in their societal apparatus than were the pre-Inca cultures. So it it, it I had always assumed after visiting the walls myself many times now that Sacsayhuaman is a pre-Inca is a rather pre-Inca certainly, but but a an antediluvian, a pre-flood construction, mm. a prehistoric construction, which means that it was built many thousands of years ago. And in fact, this is what the Quechua people believe, and the Quechua, the Quechuans are the natives, um, the indigenous people of the Andes. And in fact, the Inca spoke Quechua. That was the language of the Inca was Quechua. And the very same Quechua that's spoken today in the Andes and the Quechua peoples, if you ask them who built the walls of Sacsayhuaman, almost unanimously, these indigenous people will tell you that those walls were built by giants. Mm. Giants built the walls of Sacsayhuaman. Now, this is, of course, legend. And the the interesting thing about Sacsayhuaman in particular is that if you if you go there and I'll be there again in June, if you go there, you'll notice two things right away as you walk around this site one that the doorways are exceptionally large which is not the case for all megalithic constructions right. some of the megalithic many of the megalithic constructions have normal sized doorways people sized doorways in other words doorways that you and i would walk comfortably through we wouldn't have to duck but we wouldn't have too much space either uh so in some some occasions you would have to duck but in a lot of occasions you know, the, the doorways are very much like right. what we have in our Normal. houses today. Um, whereas Sacsayhuaman, the doorways are very large, mm. very large, un, uh, unnecessarily large. And the steps throughout the complex are spaced apart so that they, they, to be huge. they were created, if they were created to scale, they were created for people with a very long stride. Right. They were not created for people of normal stature. You have to take many, you know, a, a handful of steps in between each, each yep. level, right? Each yep. elevation yep. Uh, so in the stone. That... In 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 order to to approach these st- <clears throat> stairs, like like we would build stairs in our house, for example, or in, or in our garden, you would have to be around 10, 12 foot tall. Mm. So, okay, that's interesting. So I, I kind of started the conversation with the megaliths because that was kind of the tie to Peru and stuff like that. Um, and I'm glad you brought it 
to the Giants because people are probably like, oh, hold on a second, wait, what, Giants, what's going on here? And so, and part of what I was saying earlier, you know, just for people, I was saying this to you a little bit off air, um, is that I love, you know, these quote unquote fringe topics. Um, it's hard to know where to start, right? Because it's the more I get into stuff and looking into stuff, it, it just seems like it's all connected. Um, that sounds like so cliche to say, but it really does. Like it's, it seems like it's all kind of a concerted effort. And it's, I think it's because we have an enemy, um, and you know, he's trying to do us harm as an enemy and, um, you know, his kingdom has some degree of order to it. Um, but, and I love that you always bring it back to the Bible and to Christ. Um, but kind of, it seems like the best place, the only place to begin really is you have to go to Genesis six and, you know, if people are out there are Christians and, you know, we lost you when we said giants, um, this is a part of the Bible that's, you know, almost completely ignored in the church. Um, you know, even me up until recently, I would skim over it and kind of like, Oh, that's really interesting. But, and just kind of keep going. Um, so, you know, just read it right here. Genesis six, four, um, you know, it's, it's talking about, the, the flood is about to come and it's about to go into the Noah story. And it says in verse four, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old men of renown. And this is where people say the giants come in. Um, and there's, this is just a whole can of worms. And, you know, Tim, you've written a book, you've written a book about, all this interconnected, crazy, wild stuff that I've been looking into. But, um, you know, for my audience that might not have really started looking into any of this stuff, I'd love to kind of um, take it from sort of a 10,000-foot view, you know, um, kind of give an overview to people so they can begin to start looking into this stuff because there's no way we could cover even really one of these topics in depth in the time we have. But I want to just kind of lay out some of uh, maybe the, the basic like outline of some of what you're going through in your book to get people just started thinking and maybe looking and digging more on their own. Okay. Uh, we can start with Genesis six. Genesis six, as you said, is a very famous, it's a very famous, uh, it's a very famous portion of scripture, nearly as famous as, as John three sixteen at this point, I would say. Yeah. Um, it's but still this, a lot of Christians that you talk to, like uh, if you mention Nephilim, they're like, what? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. But, but, but it's, but it's, it's, it's much more broadly consumed let's say these portions of scripture today than they were 10 years ago or, right. or 15 years ago so at, at one point i think it was about eight years ago the term nephilim was one of the top google search terms oh, out of okay. all terms across wow. the internet nephilim so there hmm. was a surge of interest in the genesis 6 topic and in these creatures that the bible calls nephilim which are giants and what we need to understand right away is that this, what I call the, the the Genesis 6 affair, which is only alluded to, by the way, in Genesis, 
the the actual story from which those verses are lifted, copied and pasted by the writer of Genesis into his own account, come from the book of Enoch, where the story is amplified. And and the, really quick, the, let me just jump in for people who may not even know what that is. That's an extra biblical text that was found when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And it basic right. it basically it is um, I, I believe quoted by Jude and Peter in the New quoted Testament. Quoted verbatim by Jude. Peter okay, makes then, reference to it, but it's literally quoted verbatim, copy and paste into yeah. the, into the New Testament. And I think Jesus even paraphrases it at some point, doesn't he? Well, Jesus uses the 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 terminology from the from the Book of Enoch, the the messianic terminology to he applies that terminology right. to himself. And and uh, the epithet that Christ used of himself the most was son of man. Mm. And son of man only appears one time in the Old Testament in a in, but it's it's in a it's used as a descriptor. Daniel says, I saw one like a son of man, whereas in the book of Enoch, it's used as a title, a definitive title, right. the son of man so I'm, I'm assuming that's highlighting his humanness and humanity it is it is which is something we might get into later but <laughs> right in the book of enoch you know there's some debate over when it was <clears throat> written um but i would say that most scholars agree that at least the very beginning portions of the book of enoch what's called the book of the watchers the, the initial story it was certainly written before christ and 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 there are many scholars who believe that the entirety of the book was written before Christ. Now it's important to understand that there are three different books of Enoch. Um, there are, in other words, there is what I believe is the original book of Enoch, and then there are two variations, which are which are I think later versions, and one of them is is Jewish mysticism. It's really just an adulteration, I think, of the original Book of Enoch, and it's yeah. sort of a Kabbalah Jewish mysticism interpretation of the Book of Enoch. Um, so, so we don't have to go down a whole there, rabbit trail there. I just wanted to give people they don't even know what that is. Well, it's called Enoch. I just in case people can look it up. There's there's Enoch one, Enoch two, and Enoch three, or first yeah. Enoch, second Enoch, and third Enoch. And what and I would say people should probably stay away from second and third Enoch and and. And if you're interested in the Book of Enoch, pick up a copy the R.H. Charles translation of First Enoch. Okay, that yeah. is the one from which that is the one that the that the writer of Jude quotes verbatim, copies and pastes into his epistle, and uh, that is the one that is clearly what the writer of Genesis is referencing. Yeah. Is the is is the story that is told in First Enoch? So Enoch is, as you said, it was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, among many other scrolls, such as the Book of Giants, fragments of the Book of Giants, and the Book of Ezra, and a, a, a bunch of other, a, a bunch of other um, Old Testament books, as well as extra extra biblical books. And uh, it was preserved because it was very important to the the Hebrew people. The Book of Enoch was essential, in fact, to their cosmology. When I say cos cosmology, I mean their worldview. Um, 
in in fact, there's a lot of stuff going on in the Old Testament that if you do not have that Enochian story as yeah. the substrate, as the foundation, you will not really understand what's happening because because yeah. the events of that are detailed in Enoch are alluded to so often mm. and were well understood by the Hebrews. So this is an ancient, this is a this is a very fundamental story in ancient Hebrew cosmology, the story yeah. that is told in the book of Enoch, what I call the Enochian tale. And it reverberates through the New Testament, by the way. The book of Enoch is acknowledged by scholars to have had a profound impact on the writers of the New Testament mm -hmm. and, and on their theology. So, And by the way, there were many early church fathers, such as Tertullian, and um, such as uh, Justin Martyr, and some of these, some of these sort of founding fathers of the of the church, who argued that the Book of Enoch should have been included in the canon. Hmm. But I'm not really concerned with the canon. I'm only concerned with whether or not the story told in Enoch is true. Right. Is it true, and does it sync with the biblical narrative? Well, we can answer the second question in the affirmative. It absolutely syncs with the biblical narrative. Yeah. In fact, it must, because so much of the narrative narrative is dependent on the Enochian tale. And let me just stop you again there, because um, people may not even know what we're talking about. So in a nutshell, I'll just give it real quick. It is that when these watchers descended on Mount Hermon, they came and traded humankind technology for wives basically um and then these wives bore hybrid children which would be the nephilim the giants that's correct? right that's right yeah and it's a very interesting story because there's a lot of profound theological implications associated with it you you referenced peter who makes reference himself to Enoch, when he talks about the angels who sinned, who are bound in chains, everlasting chains in mm -hmm. darkness. A mysterious verse. Right. It's not mysterious if you are versed in Enoch, <laughs> because Enoch tells us exactly who those angels mm. are and what they did to deserve that fate. And clearly, Peter is referencing the Enochian tale. And the story begins very briefly. You, you, you just gave a snapshot of it. I'll enlarge on it a little sure. bit. Yeah. The story begins with 200 watchers. Watchers, the watcher designation is used in the Old Testament. So this isn't an extra biblical term. It's used in the Old Testament. And in the book of Daniel, there's a very fascinating story regarding the watchers and King Nebuchadnezzar. You remember when King Nebuchadnezzar was struck with madness as oh, judgment. Yeah. He became and a he, cow, basically. He was given the mind of a beast and he ate grass like a cow for three years. It was the watchers who sentenced him. To that madness who struck him with that madness the watchers of heaven okay so this is and the, and, the, and the watchers are depicted in that scene as members of a council mm. and uh, with of course the king of the council the son of god presiding over the council but the so these watchers are very high-ranking beings heavenly beings and and some some might look at them as like fallen angels. I think. Well, you no, use no. The, the watchers, the watchers are, are, are the opposite. They're actually 
they're functioning in the capacity of counselors in the kingdom of heaven. Okay. okay. Uh, and it's certainly in the book of Daniel. Daniel, this judgment that 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 is this the judgment of Nebuchadnezzar to eat grass and have the mind of a beast was was delivered from the court of heaven by the watchers. Okay. So these are the good guys. Okay. And good until they're not anymore, of course, you know, in this, in the story of, of Daniel, I'm sorry, of Enoch, a contingency or rather a contingent of 200, a company of 200 watchers. Right. And these are the ones this, I was talking about where like people might say they're the fallen angels, or I think you like to say, well, they're about to fall. sons of God. Right. They're about to become fallen. A two hundred of a two a, a two hundred a company of two hundred watchers mm -hmm. uh, devised a plan to descend to the earth to take wives among the daughters of men. Wives, mind you, not not just go down and rape women. Take wives, mm -hmm. impregnate them, and procreate through them their own hybrid sons their own hybrid offsprings. They wanted to create families. They were desirous of, of to procreate. Um, they coveted, they coveted the institution of the family that was afforded to Adam and his offspring, which, which is really a phenomenal thing that God instituted with Adam and Eve, this ability to procreate, to create, uh, to create offspring and yeah. of course the watchers couldn't do this for whatever reason yeah and but not to mention the fact that um and sorry i'm just bringing in stuff that i've heard you talk about but um the fact that because we were given dominion uh, on earth as humans we are basically in your words regents of this this dominion this kingdom Certainly, whatever yeah. right and so they're you know they're wanting to get in on that i guess Right. So when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them dominion. He told them, have dominion, not take dominion, have dominion of the earth and everything on it, basically. So you can imagine the king of heaven handing Adam the deed of the earth, and Adam was to govern the earth in the capacity of a vice regent. A vice regent is one who operates with the authority of the king. Mm. So it's not that this place belongs to us, rather this place belongs to God and we are to govern it for him according right. to the precepts of his kingdom. Like police officers very, pretty much. Which we've done a very very poor job of that by the way, but but that <laughs> that was the mandate. Yeah. And so dominion of the earth was given to Adam and his offspring forever. Remember that Paul says in the New Testament that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And so Adam was given dominion, and the dominion of Adam is associated with his genome. It's inherited by his offspring, and that gets into the image of God, which we, we don't have to delve into those waters right now. But uh, so there, in my book, Birthright, I talk about three things that the watchers coveted. So you have these watchers who are not evil yet. They are mm -hmm. turning. Their hearts are, are turning to wickedness, and they're beginning to covet some things as they're as they're observing mankind first of all they're struck with it with a very familiar impulse lust they love they're lusting after the daughters of men so that's the first so the first thing that the watchers want 
isn't just to go down and rape human women. Rather, they want to marry these women. Hmm. They want to marry them. Why? Because the second thing that they desired was to procreate families. They were envious of man's ability to procreate his own offspring. Hmm. So they wanted wives. They wanted to procreate their offspring. And then the third thing that they coveted was dominion of the earth. Mankind was given dominion of the earth. So these are three things that men have that they don't. And now they're falling into covetousness and falling into sin. And so their their hearts are being warped. And, and again, a company of 200 watchers, ba- driven by these desires, these illicit desires, they conspire to descend to the earth, which they do, and the Book of Enoch is very specific about where they descend to the earth. They descend to the summit of Mount Hermon, which is in Lebanon. The um, same mountain that Jesus transfigured on. Interesting. That's right. That's right. And they, and they, on on the summit of Hermon, they they take an oath. They bind themselves by mutual implication imprecations the book of enoch says they bind themselves by mutual imprecations in other words we're all going to do this thing and we're all in this together and whatever what whatever consequences befall we're going to assume them together there's not one single person here that's more responsible than the others that's basically the the oath that they took so they knew they knew that no they turning were, back they knew that they were transgressing yeah um and so after they took this this oath they decided um they descended into the plains uh around Hermon. so they bound themselves with this oath and they descended into the plains and they began to choose wives from among the daughters of men now I add in some speculation here. I think that that what they were about to do, this this deal that they were about to broker with the with the sons of Adam, were likely, and this is speculation, it's an educated guess on my part, were likely the deal was likely brokered with the daughter, with the rather the sons of Cain, with the offspring of Cain. And I have a reason, mm. I have reasons why I believe that. We don't have to get into that. So they chose the women that they desired to marry and then they then they they approached their fathers the fathers of these women and they offered them a deal and this is and i'm sort of paraphrasing the story that's told in enoch they offer them a deal they the deal is you give us your daughter's hands in marriage because remember that was a patriarchal society and sure. women didn't choose who they were to marry in fact they their fathers chose who were they who they were to marry and they would receive a dowry so <clears throat> they would receive a dowry which 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 is a a bargain really it's yeah. it's my wife's old, persian so i get that whole thing right in the olden days if you wanted to marry a young woman you'd you'd approach the father and say i would like to marry your daughter and the yep. father would say what can you offer me well yeah. i have so many i can give you this many cattle and this plot of land you know there was a dowry associated with sure. it so it was always a bargain in the patriarchal world and so this is what's happening the watchers are 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 bargaining with the sons of adam probably the sons of cain 
we we would like to marry your daughters and in return we will give you we will teach you the knowledge you are striving to learn and that's the way that the book of enoch describes this knowledge that the watchers gave taught to mankind it was knowledge that they were already striving to learn so the watchers already knew that men were desirous mm. for certain knowledge and we might even say technology so like perhaps like metallurgy agriculture yeah, but I think that it kind was, of stuff I husbandry think, i don't think it was i don't think it was a, as primitive as just the initiation of metallurgy right i think it was much more technological than that um but you need to imagine this scene so you have what what is effectively the gods mm -hmm. these watchers who are who are making a deal with men so you can imagine if you're one of the fathers of these one of these what you would what you would have viewed one of the fortune how you would have viewed it back then one of the fortunate fathers yeah of of these women who the who the gods want to marry right that would effectively make you the father-in-law of a god yeah. right yeah so so it was it was certainly not a difficult uh bargain to to negotiate on the part of the watchers the watchers would have been in my estimation and we don't have to go down this rabbit hole but i believe that the watchers um because they're they would be considered sons of god this term sons of god refers to this, these heavenly beings in the old testament um the watchers would have been very comely looking men probably lo they would look like very handsome young men yeah and they would and be presumably having technology that certainly to these people looks like magic or certainly supernatural things but it could just been like simple what we would consider simple technology or whatever i mean even if you pulled out an iphone today for someone from 2000 years ago that's magic right exactly right so the watchers would and the watchers would have been possession in possession of technology vastly superior to anything we have today yeah because they come from an ancient advanced civilization so so they make this bargain with the sons of men and they take they wed the daughters and you can imagine that this that this wedding would have happened with all the pomp and circumstance appropriate to such an occasion mm -hmm. the gods are marrying the daughters of cain the gods are marrying the daughters of adam and so it was a it was a legal contract between the watchers and the sons of men that's very important going back to this concept of dominion it was a legal contract so the watchers were authorized to do this by the sons of men that's why they wanted to take wives and not just come down and rape mm -hmm. women um it was a covenant uh and because mankind is the are the vice regents of the earth because we have authority on the earth we are the we have dominion on earth we are authorized to make such a covenant should we choose to Nope. to our own peril of course which is what happens but but you know we 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 were mankind was at that time was was to some extent beguiled into a faustian bargain so what happens is that the watchers they wed these wives they wed their wives they copulate with them the women conceive and they give birth to demigods who happen to grow to gigantic stature right and these so, these type of beings that you can see like throughout like every culture on planet earth um you could 
potentially, presumably, Trace. Like, <laughs> I was watching Moana the other night with my kids, and like, uh, what's his name, Maui, the demigod, and talking about all this, you know, Polynesian culture and stuff. I'm like, I'm just like thinking about how it relates back to like the Watchers and stuff, and it's it's crazy, man. This is one of the oldest stories, not only in Hebrew, let's call it mythology, but but also in the mythologies of many ancient cultures around yeah. the world. This yeah. story is told over and over. Now the details are different, but there's some um, some correlations. Like in the Polynesian one, the Earth starts out covered in water, and there's nothing but water. Right. And then islands start. Right. It's like there's so mm-hmm. many concurrent things in these. Um, these quote unquote myths that, uh, you know, yeah, they may have been fan, you know, um, aggrandized over time, but there's probably some truth even in stuff that, you know, we're taught in school is mythology, like Greek mythology and stuff. Um, Definitely. Yeah. They they all come, they, they, they all spring from the same seed. They all have the same origin. And so that's why they're all similar. They have a sing, there's a singular origin to the story. And I Mm -hmm. believe that the Hebrew account is the singular origin. And then, and then the story was, bastardized and 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 the details were were became differentiated through different cultures yeah so um so after the, these women give birth to giants and uh i believe that the women gave birth most likely to normal sized babies who just had accelerated growth like people who have gigantism today yeah um the, the their offspring who would have been not fully human these would have been human hybrids they would have been part their fathers and part their mothers in other words part the what i call the elder race this angelic race and part yeah. uh part human they grew to exceptional size and there's a reason why i believe that the watchers i think the watchers intended for their offspring to be exceptionally large because remember the third thing that they coveted, dominion. It's important to understand, and this gets theolo- very theological, but it's important to understand that the Watchers were trying to walk a very fine line here. They were trying to stay within the bounds of what, what, what might be legal to do. That's why they knew that they could be getting in trouble for what they're doing, because they're obviously transgressing against God when they descended to the earth and decided to do this. That's why they bound themselves by mutual imprecations. They took an oath. Um, but they were trying to walk the tightrope of legality here. They 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 made a legal binding contract with the sons of Adam. And, and they knew that they could not hijack dominion from, from mankind. They, they were not authorized. Right because they're not human beings. They're not authorized to have dominion on the earth. Should they, if they would have just tried to subjugate humanity by force, what would have happened? Well, the armies of heaven would have shown up to arrest that activity right. and arrest the watchers themselves and imprison them, right? Which is ultimately what happens, but not yet. So so the watchers are wa- walking a tightrope here. And so what they did was they gave birth to human hybrids who were human enough to inherit the birthright of adam dominion of the earth but also happened to be of gigantic stature so that they could easily usurp the thrones of men 
they were the offspring of the gods. So they would have been automatically revered, but they would have also had this, the size and stature, and I'm sure numbers yeah. as well. Remember, there were 200 watchers. Yeah. We don't know how many sons they had, but there would have been many hundreds of them. Yeah. So you're talking about an army of giants. Mm -hmm. And these aren't, you know, fee-fi-fo-fum, stupid Disney giants. These are highly <laughs> intelligent, exceptionally intelligent entities. Yeah. Who have the, the are they inherently the, evil like are they like already coming out like wanting to eat people and stuff they're or? unsanctioned entities they were never supposed to exist inherently evil that's a very good question they they were what would have happened if the this is a this is an interesting theological question you pose what would have happened if the one of these giants decided i'm not going to do this i'm not going to participate in this transgression i'm going to repent and ask for forgiveness from god for what my father's father has done what would have happened i wonder i don't know but that's a very intriguing question as far as we know none of them did that there's no record of any right. good giants in the hebrew cosmology and the hebrew mythos so yeah um, so the giants, in fact, are quite the opposite. They're exceedingly evil. Yeah. And they begin to oppress mankind and ultimately to devour men. Right. But again, don't picture big, dumb giants walking around with clubs over, the, over their shoulders, you know. Think Hercules. Exactly. Think yeah. the demigods, demigods. Of, 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 of the Greek mythology who are, who are uh, extraordinary beings. Right. Not not dumb beings, extraordinary beings. They're demigods, and and so uh, fast forward. We'll fast forward through the story. I have an elaboration on this called the Empire of the Gods. But we'll fast forward. Ultimately, what happens is the Earth becomes corrupted with the wickedness. Yeah, probably a genetic corruption as well, um, and the so much so that that mankind is is corrupted with the with the knowledge that the watchers gave them so it's basically like giving children lighters and, and, and you know <laughs> uh zippo lighters and, and and letting them one run wild in in a in a in a in a dry field of grass right yeah. this is like what the technology <laughs> right was like in their hands the knowledge that the watchers gave them mm -hmm. and so there was great iniquity on earth and there was great bloodshed. And, right. and, and that's and, when it uh, says the Lord saw how great the wickedness of human race had become on earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of human heart was only evil all the time. That's right. That's so, the setting for the flood. Because of what the watchers had done. Right. So the, the, and it wasn't, it wasn't like men were guiltless. They, they, they cut the deal. Right. So they're reaping what they sowed. And ultimately God decides to reset humanity, to preserve the human race, mm -hmm. and to reset humanity, and to to eliminate the abominable offspring of the Watchers. And, and what happens is basically a two-tiered situation. First, he causes the, he binds the, by the way, Enoch is being used as the intermediary between God and the Watchers here, because, because mm. Uh, God decides to punish the watchers and he uses Enoch why because Enoch is a represent represent he is he is representing the human species he's legally representing the human species God uses him as therefore as an intermediary as the as as the as as an appropriator of the dominion of Adam of the authority of Adam 
and he is interfacing with the watchers. Enoch is interfacing with the watchers and with the court of heaven and sort of being the go-between. And uh, the watchers realize that judgment is coming and they're very, very distraught. They were weeping, it says at one point. And uh, Enoch comes to them and delivers the sentence from heaven, which is which is very, very grim. And the sentence is that the watchers are going to be bound and they're going to be thrown. They're going to be they're going to be bound in chains and thrown into prison, basically, let's call it. Uh, uh, Peter refers to it as Tartarus. These are the watchers that uh, these are the angels who sin that Peter referenced. And but before they're before they're imprisoned in Tartarus, in in Hades, basically, they're going to have to witness the destruction of their beloved sons, of their giant offspring. Mm. And the giants are are incited to war with one another. And so and so they go to battle with each other. And this isn't just a bunch of giants bonking each other over the heads with clubs. I think this is a technological war. Mm. I think that these giants are the kings of of their own domains of their own kingdoms so it's it's wars between it's game of thrones it's genesis 6 game of thrones is it at this point localized still like in the near east or is i don't know that's they all over the world at this point that's a very good question i would say no i would say no this is global yeah that 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 the giants probably figure like yeah there's there's 10 giant tribes here in canaan like let's go over here where there's no giants and we can subjugate all those humans and eat their babies and the reason why I believe that, there's two reasons. One, because of the, the fusion of megaliths, which exactly. employed the same kind of technology. It's ubiquitous. The technology yep. and knowledge of the megaliths is ubiquitous, ubiquitous, meaning we talked about Peru. It's in Peru. It's in the Middle East. It's in Japan. It's in Easter China. Island. It's yeah. every every corner of the earth, even Antarctica, I would, I would guess. So perhaps even especially Antarctica, but nobody really <laughs> knows. But um, so you have a global empire of the gods that's unfolding on the earth and in fact the legend of atlantis Mm. confirms this because of course plato is the one who from from whom we derive the legend of atlantis in his in his discourse the the the, in his dialogue called the timaeus and the critias and in the critias dialogue specifically we get from the critias dialogue we get the story of atlantis and the long short of the story of Atlantis is that the gods, the story begins that the gods, okay, and, and when you think gods slash watchers, okay, the gods apportion the earth amongst themselves. What does yeah. that mean? They they say, okay, we're going to set up an empire on earth. Let's divide it amongst ourselves. So each one of us gets an allotment somewhere on earth where we get to establish our own kingdoms. But we're all sort of in a fraternity of gods, an empire, right? right. And so I think we could be in Pangaea at this point, like one kind. I don't think so. No, no. there's recent reasons why I don't think so. But okay. but yeah. I used to think that, but I don't anymore. So um so according to the story of Atlantis told by Plato. Through a priest of 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 Saïs, an Egyptian priest, to Solon, uh, Poseidon, for his allotment, he gets the island of Atlantis and the region of Atlantis. Mm. And so, what does he do? He builds his island, he builds his city, uh, his domain, and the first thing he does is he is he weds a human woman named Clato. He takes to wife a human woman. See, this, this is go. this is this is Enoch. Yeah, and then 
he copulates with her and she gives birth to 10 uh, to five sets of twins hybrid twins these are the offspring of clato and poseidon of the human woman clato and the god poseidon the watcher poseidon let's say and wow. and she the these these 10 sons of these 10 hybrid sons of poseidon chief among them atlas they become the kings of the kingdom of atlantis and so what do you have here you have what i call the mechanism of rule by proxy so you have the mm -hmm. god behind the scenes not governing atlantis directly rather his sons are yeah. governing why because his sons are human enough to appropriate yeah. the birthright of adam and govern directly govern the, yeah. their their kingdoms and this would be Whereas, like the king priest class who has the ability to go in and actually talk to god aka poseidon right. or and, whatever and so poseidon would be the god and he gives them what they're kingdom, supposed to do yeah ruling it from behind the thrones because he's not legally authorized to, to rule to govern on earth interesting ruling by proxy mm. from behind the thrones of his mm -hmm. hybrid sons okay that's what the watchers were doing through their offspring and 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 in that way usurping the dominion of mankind right mm. so so the sons of poseidon atlantis and his siblings they expand the kingdom they go on uh they go on uh at, at some point atlantis gets thrown into this conflict with its neighbors and it becomes a very aggressive state an aggressive kingdom and they begin to conquer other kingdoms. So this now smacks of that war that we were talking about. In yeah. that God sent the 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 giants, the the offspring of the gods against each other. And in fact, we're told specifically in the Critias that that the kingdom of Atlantis was basically unstoppable. It was working its way through North Africa. It was it was it it, it held sway over. Manly P. Hall says this, the great Masonic philosopher writes this um, in his book, The Secret Destiny of America. He writes that the kingdom of Atlantis held sway over seven islands and three continents. So it was a very large expansionist kingdom. And it's expanding over North Africa and it gets to Greece, to the people of Athens. And this is why the, the priest of Saïs is telling Solon, this story because Solon is from Athens, Solon of Athens, and his people are the Greeks. And the Egyptians are telling him, you don't understand how glorious your, your lineage truly is because it was your people, the, 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 the people of Athens, who resisted the Atlanteans, who resisted the, Atlant the, 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 the march of the Atlantean kingdom. Mm -hmm. And Athens was founded by Athena, the god Athena. So here you have the same sort of situation going on with Athens. Now, I don't think that it was really Athena or it was really Poseidon. I think that these are these are characters um, that are derived from the Watchers. Right. 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 So, uh, so, but Athens was was in the minds of the Greeks, founded by the goddess Athena, the goddess of war. And so the Athenians went to war with, with, with the Atlanteans in a great battle. And in the midst of this conflict, 
suddenly there was a cataclysm mm. that rocked the earth and laid waste to Atlantis and Athens, not just Atlantis, but it laid waste to Atlantis in a day and a night. Atlantis was destroyed. There were tidal waves and 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 a great storm and earthquakes and there was a cataclysm. And it laid waste to Atlantis and Atlantis was flooded and sunk beneath the waves of the sea. So Which fits right in with the biblical narrative. Well, right, because as I said, God incited the offspring of the watchers, the giants to go to war with each other and I think that that war looked like it wasn't a bunch of giants, you know, banging each other over the head with clubs. Rather, it was like it was like the kingdom of Atlantis going to war with the kingdom of Athens. Yeah. It was a technological war. It was armies being fielded. It was bloody. It was ex exceedingly bloody and merciless, merciless. And and I think there and I would say that there was probably some high technology being deployed in that war. And maybe maybe it resembled the maybe it resembled the epics of india where you had flying craft shooting like what appeared to be lasers or missiles yeah. this is the ancient epics of of india that described these 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 epic wars between the 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 demigods and 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 their armies and and so the giants are engaged in this conflict and then as they're destroying each other as they're annihilating each other what happens? God sends God says, the flood. Nope. <laughs> God sends the flood. Yeah. Now, when we say the flood, I think that actually, to some extent, downplays what 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 really occurred because I don't think the flood was a result of something else. Cataclysm. It wasn't. It wasn't that the flood was the cataclysm. It was that the cataclysm caused the flood. Gotcha. So I think that there was a massive cataclysm that rocked the earth. By the way, I would say around 12,000 years ago, I subscribed to the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis that some 12,000 years ago, fragments of a massive comet broke up, a massive comet, comet broke up in our atmosphere and fragments pummeled the earth, fragments of this comet pummeled the earth. And, and, and it, it led to unimaginable destruction on the planet, unimaginable destruction. It laid waste to every landmass and, and, and wrought terrible chaos and death. And it precipitated a global flood. Mm -hmm. Now, whether the flood covered every square inch of every mountain or whether it was certainly every continent would have experienced catastrophic flooding. Yeah. But whether it was whether the entire planet was underwater or not is debatable. I lean towards not. I've changed my view over the last few years on this. There's some great scholarship um, in regard to a local versus a global flood. Now, I'm not even a local flood guy. I think that the flood was global, just not. Uh, it didn't cover every square inch of ground. Right. And some people may say, well, doesn't the Bible say that it covered, you know, the entire earth, every mountaintop? And the answer is yes and no. Well, the, Bible uses hyper, the Bible uses hyperbole sometimes, too. Yes. 
Yes, it's not that straightforward as much as as much as that may be jarring to people's ears. Yeah. It's not that straightforward. Believe me, there's lots of great scholarship. You could you could go either way. It's a 50-50 situation as it pertains to the interpretation of the text. And both sides are equally valid. I lean towards the yeah. what's called the local flood, although I don't think it was a local flood. So I have sort of I'm in a third category, I think. Maybe I've invented it. I call it a global cataclysm with local with, floating with, flooding with with catastrophic flooding so a global okay. cataclysm with catastrophic flooding on every continent but not necessarily every square inch of every mountain underwater that's my so you're position. thinking some giants survived because not everything was flooded and that's where you get goliath and these guys later these post-flood giants i think that in my yeah. estimation there were survivors yeah um uh, and there's again there's you can derive that as well in the narrative so um i think there were survivors and why why do i think that there were survivors because well first of all we know there were survivors noah and his family survived through an act of divine intervention so god saved noah he preserved the human species and the animals and stuff that were on the ark but but I also believe that in the wider context, there were survivors probably on every continent. Hmm. And and why do I say this? Well, the primary reason I say this is because when you evaluate the 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 flood myths from all these different cultures, you usually have this this nucleus of this family that would of this the nucleus of the story of the survival stories of family that survived mm. a particular family was preserved that would be noah and his family um but you also have intimations of other survivors mm. so let's let's put it this way i'm open to the possibility that that there were some survivors i call them the the exiles of atlantis that there were some survivors um outside of the ark under certain circumstances now that's of course a controversial view i can't prove it and i may be wrong and i'm yeah. okay with that but but it's it's i, I lean in that direction i don't subscribe to it a hundred percent i'm not absolutely sold on it but i'm open to it yeah and i'm leaning in that direction but i'm also perfectly happy to concede if if I find if I find this side of the argument more compelling at some point in the future, that it was just Noah and his family and 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 that was it. Yeah. So I think it's an open question as much as people want to perhaps um uh be as much as people perhaps don't like it being an open question. I think it is an open question. For sure. Yeah, because we'll never we know have, all the answers. I mean no, and I'm not obliged to have all the answers, and neither are you. No, I said we'll never know all the answers. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, Some people so, cannot be comfortable with that. Um, but, you know, and I just want to say, like, from my perspective, like, you know, people out there listening, this stuff might sound crazy. I don't know. Maybe it's clicking. Um, I encourage you to go research it yourself. But um, to me, this it's just... It makes so much sense when you look at, if you study, like we're talking about all the different cultural narratives of creation stories and um, the flood flood accounts and stuff like that. And then, you know, even later in the biblical narrative, when you talk about God telling the, the Israelites to wipe out entire 
um, not species, but entire civilizations like man, woman, and child, um, and why you right. see like such an emphasis on um, giving g- specific genealogies is because right, it really yeah. it really unlocks the fact that like that's because this human fully human DNA is so important and mm-hmm. God may have wanted to wipe out a whole tribe of people because they were um well it threatens hybrids. human species it threatens it thre- a human yeah. species right and, and as we know jesus has to come through the human species that's right yeah that's right genesis 3 there's a prophecy that's delivered by god himself to the woman and the serpent in the aftermath of their transgression and and the woman is told that she's gonna have much pain in childbirth and then the serpent is told that his seed will be in will be in conflict with the seed of the woman. That the seed of the serpent will be in conflict with the seed of the woman. That that his seed will bruise her seed's heel, but her seed will crush his head. Mm. And so this sets off a series of events, um, in which it really it really it really is the genesis of the adversaries primary occupation which is to forestall his fate which is to stop the seed of the woman from crushing his head right to forestall this prophecy and i go through this in a detailed way in my book birthright but um some my, my friend ellie marsley calls this calls this the seed war i call it the dragon slayer prophecy because this like a great fantasy novel this there will there will come in the future in the in through the genealogy of adam there will be born a man who is going to slay the dragon so the dragon slayer is coming and the dragon is is of course that serpent of old the devil satan the chief uh, rebel among the heavenly hosts and this dragon slayer this this son of adam uh, is going to be born into the world who is going to absolutely crush his head. And and this is the through narrative uh, from Genesis to Revelation. And it's really fascinating. It, 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 you know, a lot of people will read the Bible and not realize that this is an epic about the Son of God, the Son of Man. Mm. It's an it's his epic. It's, you know, I don't want to use the 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 cliche his story, but it is. It's it's his epic. It's not the epic of mankind it's the epic mm-hmm. of the son of man the dragon slayer and uh it's the greatest novel ever written but it just so happens to be true that's you know i, I like to say yeah. i like to say that because it's i grew up on the chronicles of narnia mm-hmm. and uh and then and then i graduated to the lord of the rings and um <laughs> in both the chronicles of narnia both both cs cs lewis and tolkien were were heavily influenced uh, by the biblical narrative, and both of those guys, by the way, have a very v- were very insightful and, and very covert in certain things that they put in their books that that were drawing on the biblical narrative. Um, but you'll remember, for example, in in the Chronicles of Narnia, that it was the sons of uh, the sons and daughters of Adam who 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 were the rightful rulers of Narnia. Mm. who were the appointed rulers of Narnia. So it's the same thing with, with the earth. It's the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve who are the rightful rulers of the earth. And the, and the, and the, and the devil is seeking to usurp their thrones. Remember uh, the, the, the white witch in the Chronicles of Narnia, she, she effectively usurped the dominion, the authority of the sons and daughters 
uh, of Adam and Eve. And that was what the whole story was about, was it was about the, the return of those sons and daughters and the reclaiming of their authority in Narnia and, and their coronation at the end and all that. So very, very insightful by C.S. Lewis. But the reason I bring that up is because C.S. Lewis convinced, uh, famously convinced J.R.R. Tolkien um, and, and it, it, as I think about it, 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 I think I have this right. I don't think it was the other way around. I think it was C.S. Lewis who convinced J.R.R. Tolkien that the gospel was true, uh, that the gospel of Christ and the biblical narrative was, was a great fantasy, an epic fantasy that just so happened to be true. Mm. Yep. And that's always resonated with me, and that's always the way that I've looked at the gospel. It's a, it's like this epic. It is the original story, the greatest story ever told. In fact, every every epic, every hero's journey told throughout all time is derived from this original story, from mm -hmm. the dragon slayer epic, which we call the biblical narrative, because that's what it is. It's the epic yeah. of Christ. And it's his story. It's He's the primary protagonist. Not us. He is. He's the primary protagonist in this story. Yeah. So, so that's why Jesus, when walking with uh, the after post-resurrection after he resurrected was raised from the from the dead after he he walked out of the tomb he was walking on the road to Emmaus with these two gentlemen and and he was he was he was elucidating the scriptures to them the the law and the prophets and he said to them uh he was showing them how all of these things meaning the law and the prophets pertained to him mm. You see, it's his epic. It's yeah. his story. And so um, and so the dragon knows that he has this this fate that that is terrible and that is to some extent inevitable. And so he's going to do everything he can to try and forestall it. And and that explains why he would want to eradicate the human species, because it, it explained why he would have wanted to eradicate the human species, because he was trying to prevent the birth of the dragon slayer. Right. So the dragon is trying, trying to prevent the birth of the dragon slayer. And because the, he's, 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 he's going to come through the line of Adam, specifically through the line of Seth. Yeah. Right. So not through Cain's line, but through Seth's line, the righteous line of Seth. And then even more specifically through Abraham, and then even more specifically through David. Mm. So, so, and which is, of course, what happened when Jesus of Nazareth was born. Right. Um, and, and now he's trying to basically do the same thing through transhumanism, I guess. Now, now the game is he couldn't, he couldn't prevent the birth of Christ. He, well, first of all, he couldn't annihilate the human species. God preserved Noah preserve the human genome, the line of Seth. Then he couldn't annihilate Israel, which he tried to do many, many times, um, to get rid of to get rid of that line, that that the line through which the Christ is supposed to come, through the line of David. He couldn't do that. And Christ ultimately was born despite the dragon's efforts. So Christ is born, was was crucified and rose from the dead and is now sitting at the right hand of the father so what is the dragon's what is his his occupation now what what is he consumed with now well he wants to prevent the return hmm. of christ the that that culminating event arm he wants to present he wants to pre prevent the victory of the son of god 
uh, over the over um, over the dragon and his armies and his empire. So uh, that is how the pieces, why the pieces on the board are being moved the way yeah. they are, is to usurp dominion of the earth, um, install who I believe will be his hybrid son. So it's sort of a Genesis six two scenario. That's scenario that's going to unfold at the end of the age. Usurp dominion from mankind through post-humanism. It's Jacob and Esau. We're going to sell our birthright for a bowl of stew. Um, the the dragon, the the beast and his hybrid kings. The, the the beast and his kings, I believe, will be will be hybrids in 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 the in the same. Um, let's put it this way: in a Genesis six two scenario, and and they will attempt to marshal both the dragon and his armies and the beast and his armies marshal an opposition to the return of Christ yeah. in a great kinetic war, kinetic, mind you, that will erupt in the earth at the end of the age. So Crazy. that's a very, very deep rabbit hole right there. Yeah. <laughs> es eschatological. Uh, like I am in a field descended. of rabbit holes trying to just like walk a line to, um, because like I said, I've been lick, like researching this stuff for a while now. I'm trying to avoid going down. First of all, we're, you know, we've already been going for an hour and a half. It flew by and I want to respect your time. So, um, we're coming to the end here, but I'm trying to give people an overview it's just hard to know where to go because my mind's going so many places. Um, but I really highly suggest people go check out your online resources as well as your book, which is called Birthright, which is on Amazon, right? Yep. I, I All of the things we talked about today, I wrote in this book, Birthright, in, in a systematic way. So if you're confused yes. or just even intrigued, if you read this book, you're going to get A to Z. Yep. Everything we talked about today, plus... Plus, I talk about uh, UFOs, aliens. The I ends. talk about the occult. Yeah. Uh, that's right. I talk about transhumanism, posthumanism. But I, I gotta ask, real quick, just because it's topical. The all the alien stuff right now. What's going on? Just like we don't have to talk about it long, but just for a few minutes. Like, what's your take on this stuff? The disclosures. Well, the craft. We're undergoing a process of gradual, systematic disclosure. And it's being, it's 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 being unfolded by the Pentagon very carefully. The the narrative is being very carefully controlled. But as I always say, the Pentagon cannot control the phenomenon. All they can control is the narrative. So they cannot control the UFO phenomenon. It's beyond their control. All they can control is how we perceive the phenomenon, and 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 how we learn about it in in detail. Because we're going to ultimately, it's going to become so obvious that that if the Pentagon doesn't get in front of it, they're going to look completely inept and dis and deceitful, which they are to some extent inept and they are certainly deceitful. So <laughs> first of all, for your audience, I think that we need to understand where we are in terms of uh, this historical moment that we're in. And what I mean is that we have shifted over the last few years from UFOs being in the, in a realm of fiction to stone cold fact and i don't mean advanced chinese aircraft or russian aircraft or north korean aircraft or whatever i'm talking about vehicles that are not made with human hands we're talking about um 
we're talking about advanced aerospace vehicles that have an origin other than the human species. Right. And those, this is by the way, this is by the way, the, the, the terminology that is being brandied by, by people associated with the Pentagon. Um, and so we've had a series of events over the last few years that have unfolded that have moved the ufo topic from that conspiracy space into a factual context and it really began to the narrative began to began to emerge in the press because previous to this event the press laughed at ufos the the media laughed at ufos so that it really began to emerge in the the narrative and i say the narrative because i think it was it was given to the press by the pentagon and perhaps the cia and perhaps the nsa or whoever whoever the governing body is you know it yeah. used to be mj12 i don't know if it's still mj12 very possibly so um so it was in 2017 that the nimitz incident broke the new york times broke that story about that tic tac shaped yeah. the, the 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 famous Tic Tac UFO. It wasn't a Tic Tac. It was a saucer, by the way, flying in the Delta configuration, just as described by Bob Lazar and in the manner described by Bob Lazar. And the Nimitz incident uh, basically concretized the phenomenon. In other words, it took it out of the realm of, of fiction, put it into stone cold fact, and there's no going back because the government admitted that the footage was real. It was the Nimitz craft the nimitz incident ufo was that tic-tac object was captured um on the gun camera of an of an f-118 super hornet jet which means they locked onto it which means they knew how fast it was flying um, they knew the maneuvers the extraordinary maneuvers it was making aerial maneuvers because they locked onto it Right. Uh, just like they would lock onto a missile or some other object flying through our airspace. And so this is definitive proof that these objects are real. They're physical and they're capable of extraordinary feats. And that that really began the snowball um, of of admis admissions by the Pentagon. They changed the, the the nomenclature is now UAP, although they've been trotting out UFO for some for and for for some very interesting reasons lately. <laughs> but they changed the the nomenclature to UAP and now, you know, we have uh we have different agencies. We have Congress, a committee in Congress investigating UFOs, UAPs. We have an organization uh, that was founded in 2022 called the AARO, the the all domain uh, shoot what is it the all domain anomalous research organization or office I don't remember which one it oh, is yeah. but it's uh, but it's it was formulated it was founded in two 2022 with the explicit purpose to investigate the UFO UFO activity around military installations Jeez. okay so so we have uh the ufo phenomenon being being featured in the context of a national security threat by the pentagon and in the press yeah. of course uh, the media in general has been now treating the the phenomenon um uh with with 
with a serious demeanor. Tucker Carlson has probably is the is the leading uh, journalist, really, really pressing into the phenomenon. And so we're in a very interesting we're at a very interesting point in time. You know, the other day they they they're releasing shortly here, but they released a, a draft of this report that's coming out on the physical constraints of of these craft, um, which I'm eager to read. But they released a draft and the draft uh, was was published uh, by a fellow named Kirkpatrick and uh, who's uh, who comes from the Defense Department and uh, the aerospace defense. He was in aerospace defense and and the chairman of I want to say I, I'm probably going to get this wrong. I want to say the chairman of astronomy at Harvard. Hmm. Um, Loeb is his is his last name and uh, Abraham Loeb and they claim or at least they speculate in this draft Loeb speculates and he's made some wild speculations in the past he's no stranger to wild speculations but he speculates in this draft that there may be a mothership in our solar system I saw that <laughs> in the news and and so you know so this and this is not this is not whack job territory anymore All right this is a Harvard this is a Harvard professor the chairman of the department of astronomy yeah these are serious individuals yeah and this is the pentagon and um and again the only reason they don't want to talk about this this is not something they want the american people to be thinking about but they have to because the phenomenon is accelerating and it's mm. and it's adopting an, a, a hostile posture i just saw a clip by i don't know if you saw this clip by tucker carlson it's floating around social media it's tucker carlson in an interview not during his show it's in an interview setting in which he talks about an individual who works, I believe, an, a Harvard professor, and I may be wrong on that, but oh, Stanford, Stanford, yeah. I think he said, professor. I was just watching this on your story a second ago. Yes, a Stanford professor who who approached him and, and told him that he's been studying the brain injuries sustained by military personnel who had contact, who were injured by UFOs. Yeah, like over a hundred. What do you say? Hundreds of them. Yeah, hundreds of them. And there's a and there's a case in court right now regarding this because the so government crazy. will not pay for their medical bills or something to that effect. And so it's in court. Okay, so we yeah. have we are not in the realm of conspiracy anymore. Okay, so anybody mm -hmm. who doubts the existence of UFOs, you're the whack job now. Okay, because <laughs> if you if you affirm the existence of UFOs. You're just affirming something that is a, is a is a plain fact at this point. If you deny it, then that's like denying that the sun is shining overhead. Right. I yeah. mean, you you're you're just living with your eyes closed if you deny UFOs at this point. Yeah. And you can't say, oh well, it's just holograms or it's just our stuff. You know, our our craft. No, we know it's neither of those things for a thousand reasons. Yeah. Okay. Do we have advanced aerospace vehicles? Yes, we do. Many of which were reverse and were derived from reverse engineered components of actual what I would what I would describe as alien craft. Yeah. And so anybody wondering, we don't have to dive down. We, we don't have to dive into this here. But but anybody wondering, yes, extraterrestrial slash aliens are. I like to use I like to say it this way are presumed within the biblical narrative. Yes, 
Yes, yeah. they are. They are affirmed. The existence of extraterrestrials is unequivocally affirmed within the pages of the Bible. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And if you're, and if you're, and if you want to know why, read my book, Birthright. Yeah. And uh, I'd be glad to come back on with you. And, yeah, it's uh, just have... we're just scratching the surface so little, but you know we've been going for a while. I do feel like I need to say, and you do go through this in your book, so definitely people need to go check it out and listen to more of your stuff. But that and I don't want to talk about this long, but I just got I feel like I got to say like kind of what you if you guys have ever seen the movie The Incredibles, it's the similar like storyline. Basically, your thinking is that. We're going to need help from an enemy um, that we cannot beat. Maybe aliens, extraterrestrials, mm-hmm. greys, whatever. Um, and then this this savior people or race or whatever yeah. is going to come in um, to save humankind, but it's a bait and switch. Those are actually the bad guys. Exactly. It's these are the, and, and, and the so don't go with those guys. No, the Vatican listening. is already laying the theological foundation to receive our alien saviors, and these alien saviors are not going to be the gray, bulbous head, almond shaped eyed aliens. These are going to be the the ones that we look like. Let's put it that way. These are going to yeah. be the elder race, uh, perhaps even hybrids. Uh, the, the offspring of the gods and men who who arrive in their saucers in their craft to deliver us from this other threat, and this other threat is uh, is being perpetrated by the Greys, those yeah. bulbous, those and bulbous then, head, almond shaped eyed little gray aliens. And then that we take some kind of technology from them, or something to make ourselves not human anymore and then we're well that's a long complicated uh (laughs) i'm condensing like 17 hours of podcasts into like 17 seconds i i i weave all of this together (laughs) in the book and i keep referencing the book because i there's no way that uh i could uh pull it all together for you and you know in a short period of time on an interview but it is it is i expound on it in the book and i weave this i weave these threads together into this tapestry now whether or not i'm right i don't know I suspect that I am, but but at least I I make it make sense. Yeah. Let's put it that way. In For the sure. book, um, I had to just like I had to just lay it out there because it's so crazy. I like people. You got to go research this more. Ch- get his book, uh, Birthright. But um, I had to just like somewhat show that like um, how crazy it is that it's it, like I said in the beginning. It's like all connected, going back from Genesis six all the way you know giants megaliths aliens all this crazy stuff that seems all over the place and like weird but if you actually like really look into it and follow it like it makes a lot of sense how it all fits in together and is part of the plan you know of the enemy and i love how your um theories that you put forth in your book and your other interviews um articulate that in such a logical and like not crazy way <laughs> maybe a little crazy <laughs> well you know <laughs> but uh anyway man it's it's we've been talking for a while here i want to respect your time so tell people again where they can find you where they can find your book all that good stuff you can find me on youtube timothy Alberino. uh you can find me on social media at timothy Alberino, twitter and instagram I have a website, timothyalbrino.com. You can get the book on amazon.com, walmart.com, barnesandnoble.com, and pretty much all the other major booksellers, online sellers. 
you won't find it probably, at least I don't think you'd find it inside of a Barnes and Noble store. If anybody does find it inside of a Barnes and Noble store, you can send me a picture. <laughs> but um, all any online bookstore cool. platform, most of them carry the book at this point. So, nice. um, hey, thanks for having me on. It's uh, it was a it's it was a pleasure to talk to you and uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm willing to come back and we can maybe dive into some of these more. Yeah, no, that'd be maybe some of these even weirder topics <laughs> than the ones we covered today. Yeah. Yeah. I want to lay groundwork and just if people only hear this one episode, at least they at least there'll be appetites whetted to go look for more, you know, so it's kind of was my goal. So, yeah, man, I appreciate your time. And uh, maybe we can uh, link up some time or do another podcast or something. Let's go big game hunting backcountry hunting in montana all right don't don't mess around i'll do it i already my buddy who went hunting with me that turned me on to blurry creatures is like dude invite him on a hunt <laughs> i'm hey i'm here all you got you just have to show up and we're good to go okay all right man well thanks again it was great talking to you you too thank you